0: Thessalonians a little bit last week, and we talked about how the Thessalonians, they almost seem like the ideal hearers of the gospel because they are responding with what Paul calls a work of faith, a labor of love, a steadfastness of hope. They're able to have joy in the midst of their affliction. But if you remember, the point of last week's sermon was not how special the Thessalonians are. But the point of last week's sermon is really how gracious God is. Because even our own ability to respond to the gospel is really an evidence of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. It is something that we ourselves cannot do. And this week we're going to zoom a little bit more into the lives of the Thessalonians. Because not only is it helpful for us to better understand these letters, but it's actually very relevant for what many of us are struggling through. Uh, For the the community of the Thessalonians, they were actually experiencing a lot of fragility and vulnerability in their faith. A lot of the things that our sister Esther shared, I, I loved it because not only does it resonate with, I think, a lot of our own fears and anxieties. Many of us, we understand we don't have to fear death because Jesus conquered it. But if we're honest with ourselves and if we look at the way we live our lives, our faith, our trust in God is marked by a lot of fragility and a lot of vulnerability. Well, the Thessalonians, they were experiencing the same exact thing. Because they were wondering, Paul, we haven't seen you for so long. We feel like we are being abandoned like orphans. We feel like our faith and our trust in God, we don't know if the gospel of Jesus Christ is really reliable. We don't know if we're walking in faith. We don't know if we're falling away, if we're straying, if we're compromising. And these type of doubts and struggles that the Thessalonians were experiencing are actually a lot of the doubts and struggles that I believe many of us are experiencing as well. They haven't seen their leader, Paul, Savannah, and Timothy for so long. And for I think many of us with this pandemic, we haven't really seen our physical presence for so long. I know you guys tune in on YouTube, but we all know this is not the same type of connection. And I know I've been walking alongside with some of you guys on Zoom or phone conversations, but we also know that that's not truly a good replacement of being able to gather together physically and we i think many of us we feel like orphans as well we feel like it it's been so long and so distant since when since we've been able to congregate together and the thessalonians felt the same way they felt like they've been abandoned by paul and that's the reason why paul writes with so much affection and emotion throughout these letters but not only that the thessalonians they're wondering wait a minute. Am I truly walking in light of the gospel? Because when I look at my life, there's still a lot of uncertainty. I still feel very fragile. I'm suffering. People are persecuting me. I'm wondering if Jesus is going to come back. I'm wondering if I'm actually being faithful. I'm wondering if my life is being significant because all I'm doing is just working with my hands. I don't really see myself really living out the gospel life. And the Thessalonians, they have a lot of questions. They have a lot of doubts. They have a lot of anxieties about these type of things. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we take a moment to just be a little reflective, I think a lot of those questions that I just described are things that relate with us. Many of us, maybe we grew up in the church. Maybe we know what the gospel means. But if we're honest with ourselves, we're asking ourselves, am I truly living the gospel life? Are the implications of the gospel truly penetrating and impacting the way I live? Because when I look at my life, I look at my life as being very ordinary. I'm just working a normal 9-to-5 job and I don't really see much significance. When I look at my life, I actually feel like it's not marked with blessings of God, but I feel like it's marked with a lot of suffering and affliction, a lot of doubt maybe similar to the things that our sister Esther shared, or maybe it is persecution, or maybe it is something internal. But the Thessalonians were experiencing these things, and they're wondering, am I truly living the gospel life? Is the gospel truly reliable in my life? And that's why last week's sermon, I think, is so encouraging because Paul, at every turn, emphasizes, don't place your focus on yourself. Because if you place your focus on yourself, yes, it's not a pretty picture. Don't place your focus on the circumstances, on the suffering, on the affliction. Because again, it's not a pretty picture. But instead what Paul is constantly doing is he's constantly reminding the people, place your eyes on God. Place your eyes on the fact that the Father first loved you. The Father first chose you. Place your eyes on the fact that the Son died for you. The Son died came down to us and bore our cross and paid for our sin place your eyes on the fact that the spirit is living inside of you working in us giving us promptings giving us a desire giving us the strength to continue to believe place your eyes on the fact that jesus will one day return and he will bring to completion all the things that he started and began and that's what we're going to do today is as we look into this next passage in First Thessalonians, which is chapter two, verses one to sixteen, we're going to realize that yes, the Thessalonians are experiencing a lot of doubt, but what Paul is constantly reminding them is the reliability of the gospel. Yes, nothing is reliable. ourselves were not reliable. The situations, the external circumstances, are not reliable. But one thing that is reliable is what Jesus Christ has done, what He is currently doing, and what He will do when He returns for us. So we're going to, in a second, read through this passage. Uh, But before we do, I do want to remind all of us that we do have questions and answers and prayer requests and prayers. If you look at the phone number in the YouTube stream, all these messages are anonymous. So if there are any questions that come up, I'll be honest, this passage, we're not going to be able to go through every verse. It's a little convoluted and it's very deep. So we're only going to highlight a few things. So if there are things that I wasn't able to address, or if you have prayer requests, maybe there's something that the Holy Spirit is placing on your heart during this sermon and you would like prayer for, please feel free to text these away. This is part of the way that we respond to God, and therefore it is indeed worshipful to Him. Before we proceed any further, I just want to pray for us, and then we'll begin. Father, we just want to thank you for all the different ways that you're working in our lives, not only as an Uptown Church community, but as we think about it, how you are working in each individual's life. And yes, while we are going through the crossfire, it doesn't feel like you are working in our lives. It feels like you are distant, just like our sister Esther shared. But we thank you that in moments like this one, where we can take a step back, where we can be reminded of the truth, where the Holy Spirit can Reassure us with the promise of your word. We are reminded that even through the difficulties, even through the mundane, even through the moments where you feel so distant, you are actually so near to us. And it's not because we are special people, but it's all because of what your son Jesus Christ has done. It is his death, his resurrection, and it is the promise of his return that we can have hope and we can be guaranteed that every little situation in our life has been redeemed and is being utilized for us to become more like our son, Jesus Christ. We thank you. Holy Spirit, please have your way in us. Please speak your truth through this passage. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so before we read the passage, like I mentioned, it is a little convoluted, and you have to recall that this is a letter. So Paul is interacting with the Thessalonians So there's actually a lot of things that are assumed in this letter, a lot of background conversations that they've had that we might not be privy to. So let me first, before we read the passage, just make certain things that are assumed explicit so that we can actually understand the passage for what it truly is. And one thing that you're going to see is with Paul's letters, what is truly at the forefront of his mind, but is not always explicit and spelled out is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, I love the way our sister Esther uh, began that testimony because all the blessings, all the ordeal that, that she experienced, she made it explicit. It's only hopeful because of what Jesus Christ has done for her. And that is true of this passage as well. So let me, in case there are some newcomers, in case there are people who don't have much clarity of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is and what our church community, how we understand it, let me just break it down very explicitly so that we can also better understand the passage. When I think about 2020 especially, I think the gospel of Jesus Christ is ever more relevant. It's always relevant. But when I think about 2020 and what 2020 has exposed in our hearts, not only at an individual personal level, but as a societal human species level, we are messed up. Uh, the way we handle the pandemic. Yes, there are some bright spots, but there's also been a lot of political agenda associated with it as well. When I think about even just at the beginning of the year, people hoarding toilet paper and hand sanitizers and marking up that price, let me tell you, it's not just those few individuals. That is truly representative of how messed up our human society is. When I think about even just the inside trading of the U.S. Senate, when I think about just the different policies that have always been laid When I think about all these different things, failure after failure, and it's really not a political thing that I'm talking about. It really is an exposure of our sinful tendency. But not only at a societal level do I think 2020 has truly exposed just how wicked our hearts are, but even at a personal level as well. Uh, I want to be sympathetic and compassionate because I know the pandemic was very disruptive in all of our lifestyle, including myself. I am a creature of habit. We had a whole sermon series about this. I am an introvert, Uh, so this new lifestyle, in some ways, it was very good, but in some ways, it was very detrimental. Not being able to have a community, not being able to go through my routine, it truly disrupted not only just my well-being, but even my own relationship with God, and what it did for me, and what it did for many of you guys, is it showed us how fragile our faith is in God. It showed us how fragile, how fickle our trust, our love for God is, if we're honest with ourselves. And even right now, we are continually plagued with anxieties and doubt. And I don't want to underestimate the uncertain times that we're experiencing. But even as our sister Esther shared, if Jesus Christ has conquered death, If God is continually reminding us that He is sovereign and there's nothing that we need to fear other than Himself, then why is it that our hearts are still plagued with so many anxieties? And it's because our hearts, at an individual level and at a societal level, is we have this tendency to constantly distort, reject, and suppress God's character and His involvement in our lives. The way God is, his character, is he is trustworthy. He is loving. He provides. He is sovereign. He is holy. And we constantly suppress that. We constantly ignore those things. We constantly reject those things. And instead, we try to live our lives our own way. So we try to figure things out with our own ingenuity. We try to problem solve things with our own abilities. And we shut God away from us. Not only that, but God's involvement. Our God is not only Perfect. Not only is He sovereign, not only is He capable of healing us, of delivering us, but He is actually involved in our lives. He is so intimate. The way He has created us is He wants to have an intimate relationship with us, but we as humans, every single one of us, whether you grew up in the church or not, we have that tendency, like I just mentioned, to distort that, suppress that, or flat out reject ignore that, where we don't want Him in our lives. Where we want to be the ones in the driver's seat. We want to call our own shots. And the Bible calls that sin. And when we sin like that, when a heart is like that, all aspects of our life, again, at a global level and at a personal level, they begin to unravel. All of a sudden, in our relationships, we don't have the capacity to truly love. Because the true source of love comes from God. And we intentionally or unintentionally, we sever that and we try to have our own relationships. And again, we don't have the capacity to truly love. We don't have the capacity to truly forgive. We don't have the capacity to manage our anger. We are, being, we are stripping ourselves away from the source of love. And therefore, we shouldn't be surprised when all these relationships go haywire. When we think about our work ethic, and being able to make sure that our work, we do it diligently and thoroughly, but we don't become workaholics. We don't become enslaved to the rat race. We don't become enslaved to trying to pad our CV and being so oppressed by what our superiors think. It's because we look at work and we don't really think about work as being a blessing from God. Where instead of working for God's pleasure and His glory, We actually idolize work and it's all about ourselves. We get consumed and it's never ending. That rat race, it will never end. Because again, we are shutting ourselves off from God. He is the only source of peace. He is the only source that gives us a sense of assurance and security in our lives. And yet we sever that and we look for it in our vocational aspirations, our academic aspirations. And those things will leave us dry. And therefore, it's not surprising that many of us, we are experiencing life that, is meaning, that doesn't feel meaningful, that feels like it is depleted of joy and love, where there are relational conflicts, where there is drama, where there is tension, where there is anxiety, because we continually cut ourselves from God. We distort, reject, suppress His character and His involvement in our lives. And you may be wondering, well, why does God design it that way? Why is it, isn't it a little unfair and egocentric of God to design it in such a way where we need to tether our lives to God in order for us to enjoy life and to enjoy things like our relationships, our work, so on and so forth. And it's because it does sound unfair only if we fail to recognize who God is and how God has created us. And when God created this entire universe, as we see in Genesis chapter 1, He created everything. And He created not only this the vastness of this universe, but He created this entire world. He created the way vegetation will produce. He created all the beautiful, natural um, wonders of the world. All these things were created in His mind, out of the beautiful mind that God has. These things we're all came into existence. But as much as this world and creation is truly exquisite, and even yesterday, my family and I, we went to the Lions Valley Park, and we just admire the foliage, and it's so simple. But even the fall foliage, even that is so breathtaking. But when we think about the billions of species in the world, and when we think about just the vastness of the universe, how God created all these things, it truly is a testament of how amazing God is. He is truly a beautiful, glorious creator. But out of all the things that God has created, there is one thing that is the pinnacle of his creation. There is one thing that is in his art gallery that he showcases to all of his angels. And that isn't the seven wonders of the world. That isn't the vastness of the universe, the billions of galaxies that this universe has. But what God showcases that he is so proud of that he is so intensely in love with is actually the human species. Because again, as it says in Genesis 1, only the human species, only humanity, only you and me have been created in the image of God. Nothing else. Yes, this world, yes, this universe has some really beautiful things, but only one part of his creation actually bears a privilege of being the image of God. And the image of God is a loaded term, but basically what it means is we get to have a special relationship with God that no other part of creation gets to have. And therefore, God has given us the authority, the dominion, the control over the rest of his creation. We get to actually play a dominant role in the ways that the animal kingdom operates, in the ways that the environment is able to be sustained. We have more direct control and impact over God's world, His beautiful, prized creation, than any other part of His creation. God has given us such a privileged place in this universe. And He has done it so that we can have a special relationship with Him. And yet, despite the fact that God has truly given us His entire world, God has given us a direct access to have a special, intimate, loving relationship with him. And again, he is the creator of all things. He is a source of all life, all joy, all hope, love, security. How did we respond? Like I mentioned, that sinful tendency. Distort, reject, suppress, ignore his character and his involvement we basically said, thanks, but no thanks. And that is why sin is such a grave thing. And that is why when we look at the consequences of sin, yes, it is very disheartening, but it's also very fair when we think about how God created us with so much love, so much privilege, and yet we rejected all of that. And although God could have left us in the misery of our own sin, And left us in the misery of this world where this world is devastated by sin. And we see this so clearly, especially in 2020. Yet God did not leave us that way. But he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, as our sister Esther, as our brother Terry reminded us in the songs. Where despite us having to pay for our own sin, the consequences of sin, which really is death. What did Jesus Christ do? He actually paid for our sin on our behalf. He suffered our death. And He made sure that because of His death, that we have been forgiven of all of our sin. That what God had rightful wrath for us, Jesus Christ paid for all of that. So we have been absolved of all of our sin. And not only did Jesus Christ die for our sins, but He resurrected And what that resurrection means that even though we still struggle with that type of sin, and I love the way Esther shared how we don't fear death, we don't have to fear death, but we still struggle with it, even though we still struggle with this sinful tendency. The Holy Spirit now dwells in us because Jesus Christ resurrected, has given us his very own spirit, and his Holy Spirit, whoever submits and trusts in the Lordship and the gospel of Jesus Christ, that means his Holy Spirit is working in us allowing us to overcome this sinful tendency so that no longer are we living our life shutting ourselves away from God but now we are living our life progressively becoming more aware becoming more submissive towards and celebrating God's character and his involvement in our lives and that's exactly what Esther's each part was it was an instance of her recognizing submitting to which i'm sure was not easy and celebrating how God was so involved in our life. That is the promise that we now have. And now that we are being reconciled back to God, back to the source of all life, back to the source of all joy, all love, all security, all these wonderful things that God originally designed, now our relationships with others actually has hope. It actually has promise. Now when we work, now when we live our everyday situational life, now there's actually an underlying peace that we're able to live life with actual joy. And it's all because of what God has done through Jesus Christ, what he's currently doing through Jesus' spirit and what he will do when Jesus returns. And therefore, those who submit to the gospel of Jesus, now our lives are truly all about not how we can benefit. Now our lives are not about us being the driver's seat but now our lives we desire god you take this driver's seat i want to live to glorify and honor you i want to use all the gifts all the privileges that you have given me and i want it to be all about you and again it's not an overnight thing it is a process and that is what this church community is about and that is what paul is truly centrally focused on, is when Paul is writing uh, this passage and we're about to read it, keep in mind the gospel that I just laid out. That is truly in the background of every single verse and that's going to help us understand what Paul is trying to say and what the Thessalonians are struggling with and what their true hope is. Um, Before we read one more time, I just want to quickly just, uh, this passage again is kind of convoluted, so let me just tease out three themes that we're really gonna focus on for this sermon. And these are the implications of the gospel. So I just mentioned the gospel, I laid it out. What are the implications? How can this actually affect us on the everyday level? There are three things that this passage talks about. First is we can now persevere in the midst of suffering. And I think this is relevant for many of us. We are all suffering. And yes, maybe we're not suffering like the Thessalonians have suffered, but just this lifestyle, the mental health issues, the anxiety, the withdrawal, the feeling of isolation, the feeling of being burnt out at work, relational... We are all suffering in some way, but the gospel enables us to persevere in the midst of that. The other thing that we see is a commitment to God's glory. One of the implications of the gospel is no longer are we seeking our own glory, but now, which is a never-ending enslavement. We will never feel joy from that. But now we have the power to live for God's glory. And let me tell you, that is so liberating, so joyful. And the third implication is gentleness and compassion. We can now live our lives with gentleness and compassion uh, to one another. Um, And this will truly benefit all the different types of relationships that we experience. So just keep these three things in mind, keep the gospel in mind, because as we read it, it will help us be able to understand it in a more meaningful way. So, Paul continues a letter. Uh, For you yourselves know, brothers. Remember, these brothers and sisters, they're feeling very fragile. They're feeling very insecure. You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So again, I just wanted to highlight, Paul is saying, we went through great lengths to preach the gospel to you. In fact, we suffered many conflict, but the reason why we suffered it is because the gospel, what God has done through Jesus Christ, what God has done to, secure, to, um, to solve our sinful tendency, it is worth suffering. It is worth every bit of the affliction because this gospel is so worth it. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And again, here is the second implication of the gospel. is Not only does it enable us to persevere through the midst of, of suffering, but it also enables us to be more focused on God's glory. We're not so focused on pleasing man pleasing our peers, our superiors, which again is an endless rat race that will only lead to more and more misery. But now we have the power to actually live our lives to please God. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you. Uh, Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Again, Paul is talking about the third point here. Where now we can live with gentleness and compassion. So being affectionately, affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very own selves because you had become very dear to us. And what Paul is describing is when he first met the Thessalonians, because the gospel compels us to be gentle and compassionate, he is describing them like they are his little children and he is like a nursing mother. He is describing how not only did Paul share the gospel, but he shared his very own lives because they were so dear to him. And this is a type of impact that the gospel has in all of our lives where we can actually now live and respond to one another with gentleness and compassion and have this level of intimacy with other brothers and sisters as well. For you, remember, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also. Again, he's constantly reminding us that God is truly his primary motivation. How holy and righteous and blameless our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children. Again, do you see the, the, the compassion and the gentleness We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to work, to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And here again, Paul talks about the emphasis of now that we are responding to the gospel, our desire is to live a life worthy of God for his glory because it truly is about his kingdom and his glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And again, Paul is now saying, you yourselves suffered. Not only did Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy suffer in sharing the gospel, but the Thessalonians, they are suffering because they are now submitting to the gospel. People are now persecuting them. And these same people killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that we might be saved, so that always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Um, I'll highlight the last phrase because it is a little cryptic. Um, it's not too significant in this passage, but it will be more significant as we continue on with the rest of 1 Thessalonians. But I know what I just read is a mouthful. Uh, it's, we're wondering, Paul, why are you talking about all these different things, about how you're like a nursing mom, how you're like a father? Why are you talking about all the labor, toil, sufferings that you've endured? Why are you talking about even the Thessalonians, how they themselves are suffering? And we're wondering why Paul is adding so many details about this. And it's because Paul is trying to emphasize. He understands that the Thessalonians are going through a vulnerable period, like many of us. And he's trying to emphasize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is reliable. It's worth suffering for. It's worth me suffering for. It's worth you suffering for. It is something that enables us to finally live our lives the right way. No longer are we enslaved to our own glory, but now we are free to live for God's glory. Now we can actually live with gentleness, with compassion, with love for one another. And it's all because of what Jesus Christ has done. Um, So let me tease out some of these implications a little bit more. Um, So we'll go through these three things. Perseverance in the midst of suffering. And, you know, I've described the Thessalonian situation where they're wondering, uh, should I continue on in the gospel because I am suffering? Uh, I don't know if this Jesus Christ thing is working out for me. And they feel like they are barely holding on. They feel like they haven't seen Paul for so long. And I also understand for us, we are wondering, is it worth persevering in the midst of suffering? Isn't it easier for us to just live our life our own way? And as a pastor, and even as I think about Paul's language and the ways that he is really trying to describe the implications of the gospel, One thing that I really want to clarify and emphasize is what does it mean to live our life in light of the gospel? What does it mean to live that gospel life? And I think for many of us, I think we have a truly skewed understanding of what it means to live this type of life. I think if we're honest with ourselves, when we think about the gospel life, we think about a problem-free life a life that has no tension. And when I say that, I don't just mean externally, where you know, just from a superficial standpoint, work is going well, relationships are going well, but I'm also talking about even in your own relationship with God. We think, if I'm truly living in light of the gospel, there should be no tension even in my own relationship with God. Why is it that I still struggle with the fear of death? Why is it that I still struggle with doubts and anxieties If the gospel is truly true in my life Then shouldn't these tensions go away? And that's not the way the gospel works We see it, uh, we heard it in the testimony of Esther But we also see it throughout scripture I mean if you're a part of the psalm series It was very obvious But even here in First and Second Thessalonians The Thessalonians, they think that they are far from God They think that their faith is not up to snuff. They feel like they are inadequate, subpar Christians. But what does Paul say, especially in the first chapter that we talked about last week? They're saying, he's saying, you think you're not living the gospel life? Let me tell you, from a pastor's perspective, I am constantly thankful for you. I can't stop praying because when I think about you, I'm just so thankful to God. That he is doing a marvelous work in your life. He has given you a work of faith, a labor of love, a steadfastness of hope. When I see you, I, my heart is just overjoyed because you are truly living the gospel life. You don't believe me? Here from Achaia and Macedonia and all of the known world, everybody, they recognize how your faith is a faith of God. And when I think of some of you guys, especially in the uptown community, as I've been walking with some of you, I think you have the same psyche. You feel like you're suffering and you feel like the tension in your life, and again, not just the superficial things like work, relationships, but the tension in your own relationship with God. You are buying into the lies of Satan, thinking that maybe you're not really living the gospel life. But when I see the baby steps that you take I feel the same way with Paul. Is wow, you don't you're underestimating the baby steps that you're taking. And God is actually doing a great work in your life. God is actually creating a beautiful faith, a beautiful love in your life. And it's actually through those tense moments. And again, I love Esther's testimony because that is a clear example of that. It is through that period of yes, you wrestling with your doubts and your anxieties, your frustrations and failures, that God is actually honing your faith and allowing you to become more like His Son, Jesus Christ. So yes, the gospel enables us to persevere through our suffering. The fact that Jesus Christ has canceled all of our sin, the fact that Jesus' Spirit is living inside of us, and the fact that Jesus will one day return all those things enable us to have a true hope in the midst of our suffering. And perhaps the greatest example of somebody suffering and still being able to persevere and place our trust in God. As much as I love Esther's testimony, the best example is truly Jesus Christ. Not only does Jesus Christ enable us to persevere and suffer, In the midst of suffering, but he's actually the prime exemplar. Even in his sufferings, where he himself felt betrayed by his very own disciples. Even the physical sufferings, where the nails were pierced through his wrists. The flogging, the blood, the shame also. It's not just a physical suffering, but even an emotional, sociological suffering. Him hanging on that cross, being naked. Where everybody can see him. But truly the greatest suffering, like I mentioned, is the tension. Not between his disciples or the religious leaders. But the tension that he had with God himself. Where Jesus was actually forsaken by the Father for the very first time in all of eternity past and eternity future. He experienced that rejection. His Father turning his back on him. He experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane where he actually didn't want to bear this cup where even his own fears were overtaking him. He was at that cusp and yet Jesus persevered. If you feel like you are the only one experiencing tension in your relationship with God or you feel like you're failing, Where you feel like your faith is fragile. No, it's not just Esther. It's not just me. Jesus himself lived that. And he overcame it. And the same spirit that enabled him to overcome that is the same spirit that is dwelling and residing in every single one of us. That is the hope that enables us to persevere in the midst of whatever kind of suffering we're experiencing. Whether it is the type of suffering that the Thessalonians experienced, which was direct persecution... And we're going to learn later a feeling of meaninglessness or whether it's other types of sufferings that we're experiencing. Jesus has experienced it all and he has conquered all of it. And he has given us the hope through his spirit so that we ourselves can overcome it as well. The other implication of the gospel that we see in this passage is a commitment to God's glory. So not only does the gospel enable us, to persevere in the midst of whatever kind of suffering. But the gospel now frees us. So no longer are we enslaved to living for our own glory, which is truly a vain enterprise that will only leave us high and dry. But now we can be free from that enslavement. And now we can actually live for God's own glory. And that's why Paul kept saying, I'm doing this, God is my witness. I'm not doing this to please man. Or humans, But I'm doing this to please God. I am an approved, entrusted messenger of God. I'm not doing this for my own glory. I'm not doing this for my own agenda, my own ulterior motives. I'm doing this only for God. God is my witness. God is my only audience. And this is the type of liberating blessing that we have. Where, man, I'm so tired of living for myself. I'm so tired... Of living for this rat race of life and I know for some of us who are in our 20s maybe even in our 30s we feel like this rat race is actually good because we're actually winning in some ways but there will be a point in time where you realize wow all of this is truly vain Uh, I love the song that our sister Christina led us in um, all glory be to Christ our King in the first verse What are we to boast? All these things will crumble and fade away. And there will be a point in our lives, maybe right now in our 20s and 30s, we feel like we're just so in the thick of things, but in those moments where we take a step back, and that usually happens as we become more seasoned in life, but hopefully we can have those moments before we waste all these years as we recognize, you know what, the only thing that truly gives me joy The only thing that's truly worth living for is living for God's glory. And there is so much liberation in that. Because as I described to you earlier, the gospel means that we get to be empowered to live rightly. No longer are we living constantly rejecting, suppressing, ignoring, distorting his character and his involvement. But now we are living for His glory, which means that in every aspect of our lives, we are recognizing God's character and His involvement, just like our sister Esther did. We are able to submit to God's character and His involvement, which is not easy. And then we can eventually celebrate God's character and His involvement in our lives. Thereby, we are glorifying, worshiping God. That is truly worship in a nutshell. And when you live your life that way, it doesn't matter what happens throughout the week. Yes, there will be setbacks. Yes, there will be periods of stress and frustration. But before you go to sleep, or when you wake up, or when you have those moments to just pause and reflect, you recognize, you know what? That frustration in life is such a small drop in the bucket. In fact, God is actually in control of that. That tense relationship that I have at home or the feeling that I feel pigeonholed at work, God is behind that. And there is something that God is trying to teach me so that I can better appreciate the gospel of Jesus Christ through these situations. That is what it means to live for God's glory, is when we're able to... Recognize, submit to, and celebrate His character and His involvement in every aspect of our lives. And who, again, is the best example of this? Again, Jesus Christ. Not only does Jesus enable us to live this type of lifestyle, but He is the perfect example of this. We know that even in the Gospels, man, Jesus was a bona fide rock star. Everybody loved Him. Throngs of people Fled after him. When we think about our career aspirations, Jesus had that. Jesus had the known world in the palm of his hands. He was truly a rock star. But at every turn, he didn't really care about those things. Even when Satan was tempting him in the 40 days of his fasting, Satan could have offered him the entire, all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus was not interested in any of those things. Instead, he was resolutely focused on accomplishing the will of God because at every aspect of his life, even in his successes, he recognized that this was God's character, his involvement. It was all about achieving God's purpose, his plan. He submitted to that and that is the way he dedicated his life. And once again, the hope for us We can walk in Jesus' footsteps because, again, His Spirit is dwelling inside all of us. It's not left to ourselves. It's not left to our own willpower. But it is literally His willpower. It is His Spirit, His heart that is working in us. So that progressively, we are no longer participating in this endless rat race. But instead, we are living for His glory. Uh, the third implication that we see in this passage is a gentleness and a compassionate disposition. Uh, this is the language that Paul used where he talked about how he is a nursing mother, how he is like a father, how he shared his very own life with the Thessalonians. And this is truly another implication of the gospel is it enables us to Interact with others with the same type of love. When we think about the gospel, as I laid out earlier, and we, when we think about how God blessed us so much, just as being a human, bearing His image, where we can have an intimate relationship with Him, and yet we've rejected all of that. And yet God did not stop the story there but he still pursued after us. And not only did he pursue after us, but he did it in such a sacrificial, costly way by giving up his very own son and for his son to die such a gruesome, horrific death. How else can we respond to other people than with gentleness and compassion? When we ourselves can recognize how sinful we were, how sinful we currently are, and how we're gonna continually struggle with sin until we see them face to face. When we see our fellow brothers and sisters who wrong us, who maybe rub us the wrong way. Yes, it's annoying. Yes, our default way of reacting is out of anger. But when we think about the gospel, and again, that's why I say the gospel is so central to Paul's writings. And that's why we needed to make that explicit. When we unpack all those things, yes, the frustrations are there, but are we not compelled to respond with gentleness and compassion? Because that is really the way God pursued after us. God doesn't call you, God doesn't call me to be gentle and compassionate just because he wants us to be, I don't know, good ambassadors, good representatives, good Christians. But God calls us to be gentle and compassionate because he was gentle and compassionate towards us. Again, not only does Jesus Christ enable us to be gentle and compassionate, but he is the prime exemplar when we think about his compassion, his gentleness, and the ways that he did that not only historically to his disciples, knowing full well that his disciples would all desert him, knowing full well that one of his disciples would truly betray him, and yet he washed their feet. And if you know anything about ancient context, that is something that only slaves do. It is so lowly. And we see it even in the Gospels. His disciples are wondering, why are you washing my, I should be washing your feet. It was so radically subversive. And yet Jesus washed their feet, knowing full well that later that night, one of his disciples, Judas, would literally betray him. Knowing full well that the rest of his 11 disciples, that he poured his heart out, just like Paul saying, I was a father to you. I was a nursing mother to you. I shared my life to you. Jesus did that for three years with his disciples. Knowing full well that even though he gave up his very own life, that they would abandon him. He washed every single one of their feet. He carried every single one of their crosses. He bore every single one of the consequence of their sin. That is gentleness and compassion. And not only did He do that historically with His disciples, we see Jesus doing that even in our own lives, do we not? That's why I love each part, because we're able to zoom into how Jesus is so gentle and compassionate. He stages difficulties in our life, yes? Yes? It's difficult. But then he also stages these miracles that are so intimate, so specific to us as individuals. It's incredible how every each part, how every testimony, yes, it's the same because God is the author of it, but it is so intricate to our individual setting, personalities, background, history, because he is so gentle, so compassionate. And even right now, if you think you are an abandoned child, like the Thessalonians thought they were, or if you think you are a rebellious child who has turned his or her back to God, make no mistake about it. This Jesus, our God, is a nursing mother. He is a father who is longing after you. Yes, we're going to fail him many times over. He will still wash our feet. He will still bear that cross for you. And when we think about that, wow. Just like the what Paul is trying to do with the Thessalonians, we are reassured, we are we are reassured of the reliability of the gospel, the security of the gospel. And that enables us to be gentle and compassionate to other people as well. Um, as far as the way we're gonna wrap up this sermon and how we're gonna apply it is um, yeah, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you at a personal level then uh, we're going to take some time to allow uh, the holy spirit to kind of crystallize those things but i also think that these three things are not only very relevant at a personal level but i think they're very relevant at a small group community church level as well so it's no coincidence that this week we are going to start our life group ministry we're so excited and as Just looking at the people who signed up, A, I'm just really blessed because a lot more people signed up than I thought. I know the pandemic has been truly difficult for all of us. So seeing the number of people sign up, I was very encouraged. But more than the numbers, actually, what I was really encouraged is the names. Uh, As I've been praying for you guys over the summer throughout this pandemic, and as I've been talking with some of you guys, I know that it hasn't been easy. And I know right now you feel torn. You feel that tension in your relationship with God. But the fact that you signed up and the fact that you're taking these baby steps, well, again, that is truly evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. Do not discount that. Just like Paul said, a labor of love, a work of faith, a steadfastness of hope, I see that in these baby steps. And I'm so encouraged for this upcoming year of life group ministry. But at the same time, we need a lot of prayer. We need the Holy Spirit to work. And as I also shared, whenever we take these baby steps of faith, there's always opposition. Satan is going to try to discourage us, nip us at the bud. We need to persevere. We need to depend on the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit to do what only He can do. So these three things I feel like are really great ways for us to pray for our small group. Let's pray for every single one of our small groups. There's going to be a lot of suffering that we experience. But let's pray that through our small groups, we can persevere because we are reminding each other of the hope of the gospel. We are reminding each other of what Jesus has done on our behalf. We are reminding each other that Jesus' spirit is living inside of us, enabling us to persevere in our suffering as well. Let's also pray that in every single one of these small groups, that we will be ultimately committed to God's glory. Yes, I want to be sensitive I know we all have our own different needs, our different hopes and expectations. I know for some of us, uh, small group is great because it does fulfill a social need and I don't want to discount that. But ultimately, we pray that every small group is about glorifying God. It's about recognizing God's character and his involvement, submitting to that and celebrating that together in these intimate settings. And the third thing is gentleness and compassion. Man, this is so relevant for small groups, is it not? Being able to be in a community where compassion and gentleness is extended towards you, where you are able to love others as well, where we're able to share our lives together, just like Paul said in the passage that we just read. And again, we can't force these things. This doesn't happen based on good social etiquette or good personalities. These things can only be forged. By the power of the Holy Spirit So we want to pray for these things So as we pray for these things I do want to introduce these groups So um, I had a chance to talk to some of the leaders And um, these are the uh, groups that we will be proceeding with So consider this as an official announcement And later this week The leaders will go ahead and contact you About the first meeting, logistics And all these different things Uh, So let me just Display these uh, names so that as we pray for these small groups, we're not just praying for just a ministry, but we're praying for individuals. We're praying for people, people who are experiencing suffering, people who need gentleness and compassion. So I think this will be very appropriate. Uh, So the first group that I want us to pray for is Henry and Rebecca's group. And in their group will be June, Christian, Christina Song, John, and Catherine we want to pray for them. Uh, the second group is Sarah Misu's group who will be with um, who will consist of Esther Su, Sam Kim, Fraser, Nguyen, Liz Cho, and Simeon. Uh, the next group is pa- our Deacon Paul's group Susan Park, Sujin, Jane, Marcus, Sunghan, Esther Lim, Elizabeth, and Juno. Uh, Raven and Sua are going to be leading a group as well. Eileen, Martha, Claire, Marvin, Jack, and Mary. Uh, In the years last year when we did this, we actually had the group stand, so that way we could kind of see. But you know, we don't really have that same effect. Uh, Rochelle's group: Julia, Stephen, Abby, Kevin, Delila, Norman, and Sunny. Uh, Jacob's group: Susan Chang, Terry. Selena, Karis, Eugene, Francis, and Audrey. And then uh, my wife, Jeannie, will be leading a group with all the mothers. And I'll be leading a group with all the fathers. So as you can see, there's a lot of groups. I wish we can all stand so that we can pray and see each other and be able to place these names with faces. But I'm very excited. But as much as I just mentioned, as I'm excited, we need the Holy Spirit to, to work to enable us to do those at least those three things. So if we can take a moment to pray for our small group ministry, I think we should definitely pray for our leaders, our facilitators. Um, We call them our disciples. And we know that all of them are living very busy lives. We know that all of them, they don't feel adequate. But they are stepping up because they are responding to what God is calling them to do. And I'm just so thankful. Those baby steps, I feel like, again, are truly instances Evidences that the Holy Spirit is working in their hearts and they are responding. I'm just so thankful. So we should pray for every single one of these disciples, small group leaders. We should also pray for all the members and the individuals. Any names that you remember, let's lift them up. Um, and let's pray specifically through those three things. Perseverance, in the midst of suffering, really focusing on God's glory, and having gentleness and compassion towards one another. So at this time, if we can all uh, rise, pray for small group, um, and then we'll move on to the next part of our worship.